Romans 12, verse 1. Remember last week I said you have to read how many of these verses? Two together, right? We preached on verse 1 last week. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Just a quick look back at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That verse is a strong appeal to Christians to yield their bodies as a living sacrifice, which is to be holy or separated to God and acceptable to Him, one that He would be well pleased with. And this constitutes the believers, as the Scripture says, reasonable or rational act of worship. It's the proper thing for Christians to do. And it is worship that we can do all throughout the day, every day. Any space can be a sacred space because the temple of God is where our own heart and the spirit dwells there. So rational worship, what the King James calls reasonable worship, is presenting our bodies to God. And it's the obedience of faith. Once you're saved, God starts that work of sanctification in your life, and that's progressive. It's ongoing. In Romans one twenty-five, it says that because when they knew not God, this is speaking of unbelievers, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was dark, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men, to birds, to four-footed beasts, and even to bugs, to creeping things. Could you imagine people worshiping bugs? If you cease to worship the living creator God, you will, you will end up worshiping something else, something that is foolish, something that is very irrational, like evolution. I, uh, I saw just a very short clip from Bill Maher the other day. You know him? He's just a well-known atheist. And he was lamenting the Supreme Court brief that was leaked about overturning Roe versus Wade. And he ended up saying this, pray that the justices don't do it. <laughs> and I said, pray to who, Bill? <laughs> Atheists don't believe in prayer. Now he was using that in a different manner. But Paul's appeal in Romans 12.1 is not based on his apostolic authority, which he does in many other epistles. He grounds his appeal on the mercies of God, which were shown to sinners who could not save themselves. 1 John 4.10, we looked at this in Sunday school. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That's the 
the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then verse 18 says, we love him as a response, right? We love him because he first loved us. So we are to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. The Phillips translation has it this way, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable to him. James, James chapter 2, verse 17 says that faith, if it does not have works, is dead, being alone. It means it's, it's not a living faith. He says, Yea, a man may say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Now, we don't work to get saved, but in response to the salvation that God has provided for us, which is all of grace, not of works, we work, right? We serve God. We serve God with our bodies. That's a, a, a living sacrifice that we present to him. How many of you have ever heard of Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf? Hmm? Most of you, right? One time he was in Dusseldorf, Germany, and he was visiting an art museum. And while viewing Domenico Fetti's painting called Ecce Homo in the Latin, Behold the Man, which was a portrait of the, the suffering thorn-crowned Jesus, he was moved, Zinzendorf was moved, when he read the Latin inscription beneath the painting. Now, I don't think it shows it, but actually there is an, an inscription beneath that painting. Ecce homo, behold the man. And the inscription on that painting reads, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? And Zinzendorf said to himself, I have loved him for a long time, but I have never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And under Zinzendorf's leadership, Moravian missionaries went out into all the world in an unprecedented way that had never been seen before. And by the time Zinzendorf died in 1760, after 28 years of cross-cultural missions, the Moravians had sent out 226 missionaries into 10 different countries with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, long before Zinzendorf did anything for the Lord, he gave himself to the Lord. He fell in love with Jesus when he was six years old. How many six-year-olds really think much about Jesus? Zinzendorf did. He couldn't get him out of his mind. And service to the Lord begins with making yourself a living sacrifice. And that's what Zinzendorf first did. You know the song, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross? You know that song? 
in which the Prince of Glory died, the last chorus goes, where the whole realm of nature, mind that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I have done this for you. What have you done for me? So acceptable worship, as we move on to verse 2, we'll see leads to a transformed life. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be not conformed. This is believed to be, well, it's a present tense, believed to be a, a passive imperative. Could, could be middle voice instead of passive voice, but I think it's probably passive. It's a negative prohibition. And it's a compound word. It has the noun schema, which means form or appearance, attached to the prefix to. The English word schematic comes from the Greek word schematizo, schematic. You could hear it in there. And what it literally means when it says, do not be conformed, it literally means, literally means do not be pressed into a mold, a form. So practically it means do not let the world system dictate your behavior. Don't let the world system dictate what you look like, how you think, and how you act. Do not let the world press you into its mold. And although I said it could be a present passive, it does not mean that you, you let God do it all. God supplies all that we need by His grace, but believers are active in their sanctification. And the present tense here means that it is a constant thing. You have to be constantly on the lookout of the world pressing you into its mold. That's your Christian duty. And actually, it's interesting. I have down here on your notes, do not be molded into this age. Because the word, their world, translated that way in the King James, is not the word cosmos, which is the typical word for world. This is the Greek word ion. And it's really referring to the present world system. And many translations have age. Do not be conformed to this age. So the noun there, ion, refers to a particular period of human history in which is the, the devil is the temporary ruler over planet Earth. The Bible says that Satan is the god of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.3 If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost in whom the God of this world, and there's your word again, ion, same one that's in Romans chapter 12, the God of this age, this age, hath blinded the minds of them who do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So Satan is actively working in this world, in this age, to blind people to the gospel. So when you get upset with the news and you hear all these radical anti-abortionists or whatever the group is that's articulating their, their viewpoint contrary to the word of God, you need to understand they're blinded. They're blinded by the God of this age. And there but for the grace of God go I. 
Now, the spirit of this age, that's an interesting phrase. The spirit of this age is the spirit that seeks to live independent of God. And once you live independently of God, then you have to obtain your satisfaction, your gratification, your pleasure from other sources. Your hope, whatever it is, your joys. And we often call these worldly pleasures. Worldly pleasures. What did 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 say? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world. And then he defines all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Is of the world. Psalm 10, 4 says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not at all in his thoughts. Now stop and think about that. The wicked, and that really encompasses everybody who doesn't know God, who has not been saved and sanctified and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They do not seek after God. God is not at all in their thinking, in their thoughts. So if you, if you listen to radio or TV talk show hosts or cable news, you hear the thoughts and opinions of men who largely do not know God. And that is why they do not talk about what the Word of God says. God is not at all in their thoughts. So they give you political opinions and commentaries and philosophy and things like that. But rarely do you ever hear them address the real problem in the hearts of men. Right? They're separated from God. Now the word I own, age, refers to the course of this world. The course of this world. You're familiar with Ephesians 2, 1. And you hath he quickened or made alive spiritually who were dead in trespasses and sin, where in times past, and this is referring to before Christ, before you knew Christ, in times past, you walked. That means you had your manner of life according to the course of this world. <laughs> it says, the ion of the cosmos. That, that's how you could put it. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. The world system, the course of this world. The world system is mankind and societies and cultures in opposition to God. It comprises every race of people on earth. Its leader is Satan and the principalities and the powers that are aligned with him. It encompasses politics, educational institutions, the media, all our social constructs, entertainment world, science. By the way, the new God is scientism. Have you figured that out yet? He's he's the, the new God of this age, scientism. False religion is part of the world system. Literature is part of the world system. Philosophy, games, 
the business world, racist ideologies. You can go on and on. It's all part of this world system. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You could see flesh and blood, right? So behind the people that you can see that are living in, in a very ungodly way, behind them are powers operating. Principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. We're wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. In high places. So he's telling us that there is an unseen foe, the demonic powers that are at work all the time upon this earth. Blinding people to the truth. Leading them to commit despicable acts. Directing their thinking. All the way down to directing the thinking of children in elementary grades. Through the public educational system. 1 John 5.19 says that we know that we are of God. Look, look what it says. And the whole world lies in wickedness. The whole world system is wicked. Every part of it has been touched by sin. Now, before you became a Christian, you were part of that world system. You were walking according to the course of this world under Satan's control. Now, after salvation, you are still in the world, right? Until the Lord takes you out of the world physically, but you are not of the world. God has saved you out of that. Lewis Berry Schaefer says, The world or world system originated with Satan and consists of those philosophies and values that perpetually influence humankind to think and behave contrary to God in his world. The world system is mankind and society functioning without God. It is first and foremost a way of thinking about life that is contrary to the biblical way or the divine viewpoint. Last week in Sunday school, we talked about, the, watched the clip of Ken Ham on the, a biblical worldview. And if you read the prayer list that I put out last Wednesday under urgent requests, then you read this. A new study from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University has found, listen to this, that just 37% of Christian pastors, those who call themselves Christians in the United States, have a biblical worldview. Just 37%. That's alarming. Because it indicates the extent to which the world system has entered the church. Horatius Bonar. I like a lot of what Horatius Bonar wrote. He said, I looked for the church and I found it in the world. I looked for the world and I found it in the church. Now, what does the world system demand of people? It demands conformity under the pretense of diversity. That's odd, isn't it? We're told we need to accept everybody and every false religion, every false philosophy, every false ideology. We need to accept that all except biblical Christianity. 
can't accept that. Jesus said, or John said in 1 John 3, 13, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Because you're standing in direct opposition to this world system. Its values are not your values. The way it thinks is not the way you think. So it hates you. So what are we to do as a Christian? We're to live separated from the world. We're not to be part of it. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together. That means joined together with unbelievers. If you're a Christian, don't marry an unbeliever. If you're a Christian, don't go into business with an unbeliever. Don't form a partnership, a union. Once you get that yoke on you and them, they're going to go in one direction and you're going to want to go in another direction. It'll never work. So, do not be unequally yoked together, 2 Corinthians 6.14, with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion or fellowship has light with darkness? Say it again, the problem is not the believer in the world. The problem is the world in the believer. That's the problem. James 4.14 or 4 forces you adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that the friendship of this world, if you seek to be friends with this world and compromise with this evil world system, that's enmity with God. You're setting yourself up against God. That's what he's saying. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of this world is the enemy of God, is walking in opposition to God. And if you're a Christian, you're doing that. It's called carnality. You're, you're walking in a carnal way, not, not in a separated way. So that's the negative prohibition. Then positively, he says in Romans 12, too, don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, transformed. Metamorpho. We get the English word metamorphosis from this, the Greek word. And it literally means to change into another form. To be transfigured. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold and shape you the way it wants to shape you but be changed, be transfigured, be transfigured. You know, it's interesting because that word only occurs three times in the New Testament, one here, I think the other one is in Corinthians. And, but the one that you're probably most familiar with would be the story of Jesus. After six days, it says in John Matthew 17, 1, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and they brought him up to a high mountain. And the Bible says he was transfigured before them. Change, same word. Change before them. And his face shined like the sun. And his raiment was white as light. Now, now think about that. Could you imagine that scene? I mean, they didn't want to leave, right? Because Jesus, he was fully God. And he was fully man. But his divinity, his divine being, was veiled by the flesh. 
But when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, he took the veil off. And they saw him in, in his glory and his radiance and his brilliance. Now we are to be likewise changed. And we're not going to shine like Christ. But we're to be transfigured on the outward so that people can see that we are different. That we are different. And we're to shine, by the way, because we're the light of the world, right? And you, you don't put a, a light and cover it with a basket. You let your light so shine before men, Jesus said, so they may see your good works and glorify the Father, glorify God. Listen, the Christian should never be changed by the world. His behavior should be different from the world. And it is transformed. So negative prohibition, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be ye changed, be ye transformed. And the agent of change is the renewing of the mind. The renewal works at the center of consciousness, of your thought life. This is the battleground for a transformed life. The world is constantly trying to press us into its mold. And the way it does that is by bombarding us with information. With thoughts. Oftentimes ungodly thoughts. There was a study published in the journal Nature Communications. It was just 2020. This year, or two years ago, carried out by psychologists at Queen's University in, in Kingston, Canada. And you know, you hear figures that how many thoughts do people think a day? I've heard 60,000, 70,000. That's not true. You don't think 60 or 70,000. That's been basically proven to be false. They used very technical science to determine when a person is thinking and when their thoughts are changing from one thing to another. And don't ask me how they did it. They used magnetic renaissance imaging and all these things of the brain and they showed that the average person in a 20 in, in one day and don't forget your sleep and you're still thinking things when you're sleeping right still dreaming but you have about six thousand thoughts running through your mind every day now that's a good figure you think about six thousand thoughts a day that's a lot of thoughts That's a lot of information passing through your mind. That's a lot of stimulation going on. The word mind, Vine's Dictionary, New Testament, says the word mind denotes, generally speaking, the seat of reflective consciousness, comprising the faculties of perception and understanding, feeling, judgment, and determining. So all those thoughts passing through your mind are affecting your perception, your understanding, your feeling, your judgment, and your determination. What you will do. It's influencing you. It's influencing you. In Hebrew, the mind is the heart. The heart. And the heart in Hebrew is the seat of emotions, passions, resolution. Proverbs 4.20 says, keep your heart. That means guard your heart. Guard your mind against that constant um, onslaught of thoughts. Oftentimes ungodly thoughts. Guard your heart with all diligence. I mean, you just float around just letting things come your way and you're going to be victim to something. 
That's how people get, get, you know, when you hear these mass shootings and everything. A lot of people are just completely taken by surprise. I was watching a little video thing by a uh, security expert. He's also a gun expert. And he was analyzing the Buffalo shooting. Now, here's a man who is trained and trains all kind of people in situational awareness. And he says, I was blown by by it. I was just taken back by it. And he says, and here's what I was taken back by. How fast it happened. People just stunned. How fast it happened. These are the things that that we face in this world. Ungodliness on, a, on an unparalleled way in, in, right before our eyes. And just as you would have to be aware if you walk into a store and you hear a pop and it sounds like a gun, it probably is. So you better know where your next move is, right? But the same thing is true when thoughts come your way. Situational awareness. Where are they coming from? How am I going to respond to this? What am I going to think? What am I going to do? Or otherwise, you'll be a victim. Now, those poor people in Buffalo didn't have a chance. They didn't have a chance to think. They didn't have a chance to get out of the way. Nothing. It happened that quickly. But we can, right? We can sit back and we can analyze what's coming at us. The, the, the media messages that are coming into our mind, into our heart. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, out of the heart, right? That's your mind, out of your thoughts. Proceed, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, blasphemies. So the battleground for a transformed life is the mind. And that's why Paul says, you have to renew your mind. And the only way to do that is to saturate your mind with Fiction, comedy, sports, cable news, the Word of God. That's it. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. Now, the word to renew your mind, anakainosis, it means to make new again. Like in a renovation. Now, and that's interesting because it's a present tense. So that means it's not one and done, right? It's a constant renewal, a constant renovation of your mind. Some things we can't, we can't avoid. A lot of the information that comes our way, we can't avoid. And sometimes we have a tendency to dwell on it, want to get to all the facts on, you know, whatever it is. And that's why the Bible says, what's over is lovely, just, pure. Think on these things, Right? So what you need to do is to, you need to renovate your mind quickly. You need to get that stuff out of your mind and you have your mind renewed by something from God's Word. And that's the value of memorizing Scripture. This is what we read today in Psalm 1. Psalm 119 says, The Word have I what? Hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 
but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every thought into the the obedience to Christ. Hold it captive to Christ because if you don't hold it captive to Christ, the world will hold it captive. Colossians 3, 2. Set your affection. You know what the word is? Your mind. Because your mind determines what you would take pleasure in and delight in. So set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth, right? Like John said, the earth is what? Passing away and the, the lust thereof, but he who doeth the will of God will what? will abide forever. So set your mind on the things where you're going to abide forever, not the things of this earth. And it's a constant challenge to do that. But notice, as we go on, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you have the negative prohibition, don't be conformed. You have the positive admonition, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you have the result that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So James Denny, theologian, says the purpose of the transforming, renewing of the mind is that Christians may prove or discern in their experience what the will of God is. Now, the word prove here, dokimadzo, in the Greek, is the means to test or examine something with the object of the test being to display or prove the genuineness of that which is tried. It was used to test metals for their purity. In the Greek culture, it was used to test metals by fire to see if they were pure, see if they were genuine. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Prove all things hold fast to that which is good. Test all things. Do you test all ideas? Do you test the things that you hear from people? By running it through the, the grid of God's word to see whether or not they're, they're quote unquote speaking the truth? Do you test it? The, test, prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Now, when he talks about the will of God here, because a lot of people like to know, well, what's the will of God for my life is, right? Well, let's just think about that for a moment. He's not referring to the sovereign will of God because you can't test that, right? That's what God has, has determined to do and will do, and you, oftentimes you don't know what that is until you look back and see what's transpired. So you can't test that. It's not referring to the moral will of God because you don't have to test that. You have the Word of God, the commandments in the Word of God. You don't have to test that when, when, when Jesus says you're to forgive people, you're to love people, you know, you're to do this, this, or this. You don't have to test that. God said it, and that settles it. So it refers to something else, and we'll touch on that a little bit. But the word there is interesting too, where it says test. 
test proof? I found this interesting. It was a technical expression found in some Greek extra-biblical documents which referred to the action of an examining board testing to approve those who had successfully passed the examinations for the degree of the doctor of medicine. In that day, they tested them. Now, today you don't need an examining board like that. Everybody's a medical doctor. They, they went to school on the internet. It's true. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Whether you are in the faith. Prove your own self. Do you not know your own selves, how that Jesus Christ in you, except you be reprobates? If Christ's in you, he's saying you're not saved. Now, I have to say something about this verse. Because there are some people who are very introspective and they're going around constantly testing themselves, doubting their salvation. This is not a recommendation that you go around doubting your salvation by examining your works. It's precisely the opposite of that. Let me explain. Paul is not asking them to examine themselves because he doubts their salvation, but because he is sure of it. Now that may seem odd, but here's what was happening. False teachers were going around claiming that Paul was a false apostle. And the Corinthians needed proof that Christ was speaking by Paul. Verse 3 in that chapter, 2 Corinthians 13. And Paul proves that he was a genuine apostle by pointing the Corinthians to their own salvation experience. He said, if you belong to Christ, then I am Christ. And he didn't have any doubts that they did belong to Christ. Charles Hodge says, regrettably, these forceful words have been sadly misconstrued. They have been read by some interpreters as though they were a challenge to the Corinthians to find out whether they were really saved or not. He said, this is unthinkable. After 12 chapters in which Paul takes their Christianity for granted, can he only now be asking them to make sure they were born again? Let the readers of this book examine 2 Corinthians on their own and they will clearly see how often the apostle affirms in one way or another his conviction that his readers were genuinely Christians. And that's again what he was saying is the proof that I am a true apostle of God is your own salvation. Because when I came into Corinth, I preached to you the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and God saved many of you there in Corinth. So, God's will. Well, I'll just say one thing in a practical way. You, you know you're outside the will of God if you're doing something contrary to the will of God, right? So if you're an unbeliever thinking about a, marrying a, a person who is not a Christian and, and, and somehow you're thinking you're gonna, that's going to work out and, and it'll be the will of God for you, that's not true. You never go against what God has said. So the word, the word will here is thalima. And it really means God's desire toward us. God's gracious disposition toward his children. 
God is good, right? We looked at his attributes this morning in Sunday school. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. So God's will toward us, he says, is good. His disposition toward us is good because he is intrinsically good by nature. It's beneficial toward us. So what God desires for us, as you think about, well, what's God's will for me? What God's desire for us here is that his will will be worked out in us. We will put our own sanctification on display by the renewing of our mind. It happens inwardly, and then it shows outwardly. That's God's will. That's God's good will for you. His disposition toward you. Because you'll be blessed in doing that. And he said it's acceptable. And that means it's well-pleasing to him. And I just put it this way. When believers act according to a renewed mind, their actions please God on one hand, and they, dream, they bring joy or pleasure to the believer. It's called the joy of obedience. So this is the will that he wants them to know. God's kindness toward them, that they would act as believers who have been the recipients of that kindness and put it on display. And then just as God is pleased with them doing what is right, his will, it's well-pleasing to them, they will take pleasure and delight in doing the will of God. And then he says, thirdly, it's perfect. It's complete. So a renewed mind leads the Christian to fulfill God's desire for him or her in their sanctification. Paul said to the Ephesians, I'm laboring to present you all perfect, complete before God. So I'll say it again, a renewed mind leads the Christian to fulfill God's desire for him or her, his will, in sanctification, to be completely separated from the world system, and to live a life which brings glory to God. So you don't have to go around trying to figure out, well, I wonder what God's will is for me with this. You know, should I scrap this business and start another Should I go to this college or this college? Should I marry this one or this one? You don't have to go around trying to figure that out. If you're obedient to the word of God and you have a renewed mind, it'll work out. And you'll be blessed. Whether you marry so-and-so who is a Christian or whether you have the liberty to marry somebody else or whether you go to this school or whether you go to this school, There is no perfect will of God. Now, I know you're probably thinking, oh, what kind of heresy is that? (laughs) If there is a perfect will of God, and that's the center of the, the target, and you miss it, then you're in trouble. Right? So don't go around trying to figure that stuff out. You have the moral will of God, which you know. You have the sovereign will of God, which you cannot know. And then you, got, you have God's will of desire for you here. And you can, you can attain that by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be blessed. Look at this. I'll close with this. Luke chapter 6. 
Luke chapter 6. Because Jesus said so much about the heart. Verse 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit. Unless I plant it. (laughs) For a good tree does not bear bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Right? They're going to produce, reproduce according to their, their nature. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush, whatever that is. But here's the verse. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. You want to bring forth good? Renew your mind. Renew your mind. Saturate your mind with the word of God. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, those thoughts, those things that he is entertaining in the core of his being, the hidden core of his being, well, they're going to come to fruition too. And they're going to bring forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Boy, I think about this. The tongue no man can contain, can, can tame, right? That's what Joe... The tongue is, sets a world of, uh, on fire, a world of iniquity on fire. No man can tame the tongue. So oftentimes when people act and do the things they do, they show their foolishness by the things that they say. Out of the abundance of the heart, what's in the heart, the mouth speaks. If if anger's in the heart, anger will come out. If lies and deception are in the heart, then people will lie and they will deceive with their mouth. Whatever it is. If, If lust is in the heart, then filthy communication will come out of the mouth. That's the way it works. Then Jesus said this in verse 46, Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. So in order to to do those sayings of Jesus in the context, we have to treasure them up in our heart. And that, according to Paul in Romans 12, is the renewing of the mind. The renewing of the mind. So here's what Jesus says you will look like if you do that. You will know that the will of God is good, perfect, and acceptable, and you'll live that way. He will be like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the the, the stream beat vehemently against that house, but it could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Put Romans 12, 1 and 2 into practice, and your life 
will be firmly grounded on the rock Christ Jesus. And it doesn't matter what comes your way. It won't be moved. Your house, your life will stand because it's founded upon the rock Christ Jesus. And it's his word and his spirit in you that is directing the course of your life and the decisions that you make every single day. And your body will be a living sacrifice to God.